Well, today we're launching a brand new series, working our way through the book of Philippians in the New Testament. And what we're going to see is one of the great themes of the book of Philippians is joy, which I think is kind of relevant because we live in a society, we live in a culture that is obsessed with trying to find joy. So if you were to go and ask the average person in the street what they want most in life, the majority would say more than anything else, if they strip everything else back, they want happiness. They want to be happy. If you want proof, next time you're in the supermarket, next time you're at the news agents, you just take a look at the magazines on display and you'll find five steps to culinary happiness or 12 steps to sexual happiness, or 50 steps to weight loss happiness. I guess if you go up 50 steps, you will lose weight. So kind of a double meaning there. But it's like people are desperate to discover the secret of happiness in life. If you're still not convinced by this, just go online. A quick trawl of the internet throws up all kinds of weird and wonderful suggestions. These are some of the ones I found this week. You could get a happiness coach or, I wouldn't recommend this one, but you could undergo happiness hypnosis. Or, you could purchase a self-help happiness toolkit. Or, if all else fails, you could enroll at the Happiness Institute. Now, maybe some of you have tried some of those things. You've said, okay, I'm going to do these five steps. I'm going to try these 12 steps. I'm going to take these 50 steps. Or, I'm going to go the full hog, and I'm going to go out and get my own personal happiness coach. And maybe you've tried one of these processes and found, discovered, it didn't work. And so what tends to happen is we begin to search elsewhere. I don't know, perhaps we think that acquiring more and more possessions, that will do the trick. I mean, that's certainly the message that's preached, that's proclaimed by the adverts that are constantly bombarding us from billboards and magazines and media. I mean, it's just pretty relentless. Now, what you'll find is almost every ad has got somebody who's smiling, which I guess makes sense because if there's someone looking miserable, you're less likely to buy that product. But most adverts have someone who's smiling and the subtle inference is, buy our stuff, buy our product, buy our junk, and you'll be happy. So happiness, amongst other things, is a cigar called Hamlet. Or if you've seen the recent Coca-Cola happiness factory ad, the root of all happiness is drinking Coke. Or if you want to spread a little more happiness in your life, then start eating Philadelphia cream cheese. Or if that doesn't work, and I assure you it will not work, you can try using nature's remedy tablets. I mean, look how happy they are. I mean, that's got to be the key. Take, take one of these laxatives, last thing at night, and I quote, it will produce thorough morning regularity with no perturbing effects. Perfect happiness is just a dump away. So, moving swiftly on, the pursuit of joy in our culture, it gets you to follow, I don't believe I just said that, it gets, <laughs> please, uh, pursuit of joy in our culture gets you to follow countless steps that promise much but never really deliver. And so you pursue new possessions, and if that doesn't work, Maybe the answer is you need a new place. Maybe you're just in the wrong place. Maybe what you need is a holiday somewhere that's a little warmer. 
Or maybe you need a new house, or perhaps you need a new job. And you try those things, you try those new places. If none of those work, then maybe what you need, more than anything else, is new people in your life. Happy people, funny people, hilarious people. I mean, think about it. Who are the funniest people in culture? Frankie Boyle. Comedians was what I was looking for, slightly controversial. Uh, I'd beg to differ. Uh, the funniest people in this culture, comedians. Now, if there's anyone who's going to have figured out the pursuit of happiness, it's got to be comedians because they make a living making other people laugh. But when you examine, when you home in on the lives of some of the funniest people, what you see is they tend to be the least happy. Take Stephen Fry, for example. He says, I may have looked happy, actually he never looks happy, so I don't know what that's all about, but maybe in some previous existence he may have looked happy. He says, inside I was hopelessly depressed. Hugh Laurie says this, I clung to unhappiness because it was a known familiar state. Jack D says, depression is something that has always figured in my life. Ben Stiller says, I have not been an easygoing guy I think it's called bipolar manic depression. Jim Carrey confesses, I was on Prozac for a long time. It may have helped me out of a jam for a little bit, but people stay on it forever. And then the comedy genius, which was Lenny Henry, commenting on the actually tragic recent breakup of his marriage, he says, that's where depression hits you most, your home life. I just can't do this zany, wacky, funny thing anymore. I haven't been like that for a long time. All of which, I think, goes to show that our culture really doesn't have the answer to the pursuit of happiness. You, you, you can try any number of different steps. You can own a mountain of possessions. You, you can go to all sorts of different places. You, you may even have the ability to make other people laugh, but in the end, it probably isn't going to make you all that happy. And so what people do they transition the pursuit of happiness from culture to religion. It's very popular right now. All sorts of New Age books and general spiritual talk aimed at helping you, equipping you to find this elusive happiness. Here's just one example I found whilst I was researching this talk. Have a look at this book cover. Ten, what do you mean, ah, ten spiritual lessons you can learn from your cat. Might I humbly submit to you, if you are at the place spiritually where you're like, cat, help me discover the meaning to life, officially you are in a bad place. Now, pretty much the main message of modern day spirituality is there is no God. There's just you and your cat. And if there is a God, he merely exists to do what you tell him to do. So figure out what you want figure out what you like, figure out what you desire, and then tell God to go away and do it for you. It's like God is the equivalent of your errand boy who runs around frantically doing what you want him to do. And that's how spiritually-minded people tend to operate. It's how they tend to think. It's about me. It's not really about God. It's about what I want, not what he wants. It's about what I tell him to do and not him telling me what to do. Maybe some of you have tried these kind of vague, general, spiritual things, and it didn't go so well. 
So maybe now you've considered trying out Christianity as a specific form of religion. But what I find increasingly disconcerting is this whole new wave of Christian thinking and teaching, particularly on God TV and in the popular paperbacks, that says joy is to be found in pretty much the same place that culture and spirituality tell us. Become a Christian and you can get rich, you can get healthy, and you can be happy. That's the message. That's the equation. Maybe some of us have unthinkingly taken that on board. So, I want to just get you to think this through with me. If God's plan for you and your life is primarily that you would prosper, that you would be rich, that you would be super popular, that you'd have more than enough money to pay all your bills and buy all the possessions you want, And what does that say about Jesus, who was born, if you remember, into poverty, who worked a common job for the best part of 30 years? He was a carpenter, spent just three years in ministry, flat broke, homeless, sometimes hungry. When it came to pay his taxes, like some of you, he couldn't quite afford it. Or think about the whole issue of relationships. Did Jesus ever have any strained relationships? Plenty of them. I mean, he ended up being betrayed by one of his closest friends. What's more, he never had sex, died a virgin, never got married, never had kids. What about pain? Did Jesus suffer physical pain? You know, some of you, you live with constant, chronic, physical pain. Jesus can relate with that. He was beaten. He had his beard literally ripped out. had a crown of thorns driven into his head. He was scourged. He was whipped almost to the point of death. Then he was crucified, nailed to a Roman cross between two thieves. You know what that is? That's pain. That's excruciating, horrendous, physical, horrific pain. What about other kinds of suffering? Was Jesus ever victimised? Because some of you, you've been victimised. Maybe you've been abandoned or beaten. Some of you molested, abused. Others of you neglected, hated, despised, betrayed by people you thought you could trust. So it happens all the time. You know, Jesus, he was a victim as well. False accusations false witnesses, false trial, false condemnation, false execution. Jesus certainly knew what it is to be a victim. What about despair or anxiety? Well, I suggest Jesus knew a whole lot about that as well. I mean, remember the night before Jesus died? There he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was so anxious he couldn't sleep. And he was in such anguish of soul that we're told his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Some translations actually say he sweat blood. Then as he hung on the cross, remember his dying words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew a whole lot about despair, anxiety. Here's my point. My point is that relationship with God isn't primarily about making life 
easy. Being a Christian does not guarantee that all your problems will just disintegrate and go away. There are days that are just very, very hard, very difficult, and incredibly painful. And if all we tell people, if the message we preach is, well, God will give you a trouble-free life if you just trust in Him, I think we're setting people up for constant failure. Because when they're hurting, and they will hurt, and when they're suffering, they will suffer. When they're victimized, when they can't pay the bills, they're just going to turn right around and say to God, God, where are you? Why is this happening to me? I mean, I really don't understand. God, do you even exist? Listen, Christianity does not promise an easy life. But look, the reason I am so incredibly excited about working through the book of Philippians with you over the next few months is because it's all about finding, discovering, unearthing, genuine, deep, never-ending joy, even in the face, even in the midst of the trials, the very real trials of everyday life. It's a message I believe is hugely relevant for us today, to a society that I think is failing so badly in its pursuit of happiness and joy, this book uniquely has the answers. So right at the start of this series, I want to appeal to all of you to stop following the paths, the routes, the schemes to happiness that everyone else are just blindly going along with. I want to tell you they are flawed. They are not working. And here's why. Reason number one. What we tend to do is we hang our hopes, our dreams, our expectations on someone. We say, when I meet that person, or when I fall in love, or when I get married, or when I have kids, we we pin our hopes, our dreams, our expectations on someone or on something. We say, when I finish school, or when I finish college, or when I make a little bit more money, or when I get my house, or that new house, or when I get my job, or I get that promotion. It's like, when that person, or when that thing comes into my life, then I'll be happy, because that'll be the source of my joy. But what if that never happens? What if it never happens? I want to let you into a little secret. Not everyone in this room is going to get married. Not everyone in this room is going to have kids. Not everyone in this room is going to end up a millionaire. Not everyone in this room is going to avoid physical pain through their whole life. Not everyone in this room is going to have perfect relationships and get to say, I lived happily ever after. So what do you think about it? What does that mean for you? What if you don't meet that person who'd be the perfect spouse for you? Or what if you don't have those children or those grandchildren? Or what if you don't get those friends or that popularity? Or what if you don't finish that degree or buy that house or get that car or get that job? Or what if you don't get that health you long for? What if you don't obtain that wealth? If that's what you're pinning your hopes and your dreams on, you're going to end up pretty aggrieved. And you'll end up despairing deeply because your hope was out there and it never materialised. Now, just in case you misunderstand, really, my way of an aside, I, I just want to make a distinction between desire and discontent. Desire, don't hear me wrong, desire is a good thing. 
I believe God wants you to desire things like falling in love and paying your bills and being healthy and living a fruitful life. It's good to desire those things. But when it flips over into discontent and you find yourself saying, well, I will never be happy until those things happen, that's not so good. That's why Paul says elsewhere that godliness with contentment is of great gain. We're to have desire and contentment. Because if we have desire without contentment, we have discontentment. And then we're constantly setting ourselves up for despair and disappointment and discouragement. And I don't want that for any of you. Here's the second reason why I think the pursuit of happiness in our culture is failing badly. When we do get that person, or when we do get those things that our joy seemingly hangs on, depends on, what we discover sooner or later is actually they're not the answer. Okay, now, I'm not asking for you to raise your hands here. In fact, it could be catastrophic if you were to do so. So, hands down. But how many of you, just, no, 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 no. How many of you, just respond inwardly. How many of you, you're married, and you were thinking, I will be happy when I get married. And then you get married, and you realize, I'm not so happy after all. I mean, I'm a sinner, I knew that, but they're a sinner as well. And there's a whole lot more conflict than I was anticipating. I mean, I was hoping they would just willingly do everything I asked them to do, and life would be swimmingly wonderful. But they tend not to operate that way. And surprisingly enough, they were thinking similar things themselves. I mean, this really isn't going the way either of us was anticipating. Well, how many people, moving on, they they get the child they've always wanted, and then they don't like the child, because the child (laughs) makes a whole lot of noise, always screaming, making mess everywhere, never sleep anymore, and actually they cost a lot of money. As they grow older, it gets more and more and more. Or maybe you get the job you've always wanted, the dream job, but there are so many hours with the job. I mean, it's now consuming your whole life. Or maybe you get the house you've always wanted, but the massive mortgage is like a millstone round your neck and you're just stressed out financially now. Or maybe you get the car, your dream car, the car you've always wanted. And when you've carefully parked it somewhere, someone comes along and crashes into the side of it and then drives off and you spent so much on the car in the first place you can't afford to repair it. Now, call me negative. Call me a pessimist, if you like, but that's what life is like in this fallen, sin-cursed world. That's what life's like. Have you ever read it? That's pretty much the message of the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. There's this guy called Solomon. He is the wisest, the richest, the most powerful man on earth. This guy has got thousands of women who he sleeps with. He's got more money than he knows what to do with. More wisdom than anyone who has ever lived apart from Jesus. He's got it all. And he writes this at the beginning of a book called Ecclesiastes. He opens it up saying this, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. 
Now, most of us, we hear that, we see that, we go, no way, I mean, the guy's an idiot. I mean, how deluded is that? I mean, he doesn't know what he's talking about. You give me all his money, it certainly won't be meaningless to me. It was wasted on him, it won't be wasted on me. But he's saying, no, trust me, you may have things, but without God giving you the ability to enjoy them, you will find them to be ever so dissatisfying. I wonder how many of you have experienced that. There was someone, there was something that you really wanted, really desired, you got it, and it didn't satisfy you half as much as you thought it would, and you ended up not as happy as you thought you would be. It's a common experience. And then the third reason why the pursuit of happiness really isn't working for so many people in this culture is we tend to be miserable. We tend to be miserable. Looking out, I can concur. We tend to be miserable. Uh, And we don't like to think about being miserable, so we tend to create diversions. We think about something else. We, We do something to take our mind off our misery. We surf the internet, we watch TV, watch films, drink, smoke, mess around, find a hobby, or whatever. Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard says this, if I could prescribe just one remedy for the human condition... I would assign every human being to sit alone in silence in their room so they can meditate on their misery. Right, bundle of laughs he sounds. But his point is that underneath the surface, most of us, if we're being honest, aren't happy. But rather than think about that, rather than admit it, rather than face up to it, We just keep on working, keep on playing, keep on accumulating more stuff. It's like we try it and keep busy so we don't have to face up to reality. So let's just take a moment right at the start of this brand new series and say, actually, it's okay to be discouraged. It's okay, actually, to to be at a hard place in your life. It's okay to wonder where all the hope and where all the joy has gone. Listen, the pursuit of happiness may not have worked out well for you up until this point. What I'm trying to help you see is that culture and even religion don't provide a whole lot of helpful answers. And so what we really need to do is turn to God, to turn to God's Word. So over the next four months, we're going to absolutely immerse ourselves in this book of Philippians, the great theme of which is joy, genuine permanent, lasting joy. And what we're going to discover as we look at this book is the key to finding joy in a whole host of different life challenges, things like loneliness and suffering and death and humility and temptation and conflict and exhaustion and anxiety and poverty. I think it's going to be a great series. It's going to be incredibly relevant, incredibly helpful. God's going to teach us a whole lot through it. Now, All of that is by way of introduction, a slightly longer introduction than one that we would normally give, but what we're going to do for the rest of our time today is we're just going to work through the first verse of Philippians. So if you do have a Bible with you, now is the time to reach for it and open it up. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1. Haven't got a Bible, the words should appear on the screen behind me. Here we go. Verse 1. Paul. Okay, we'll stop there. 
For those of you who have been around in the church for any length of time, and are getting slightly nervy now, you were around in the days when we worked through the book of Ephesians, and it took us over four years. Uh, I have already, just for your comfort and security, told you we're going to do this in just over four months. So, uh, although it may appear slow and sluggish right now, it is going to speed up in the weeks to come. However, Paul, first point, Paul. Whereas we tend to sign our name at the end of a letter or the end of an email or at the end of a text, the custom back in Paul's day was to sign your name right at the start, which actually, if you think about it, it makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? I, mean, I don't know why we don't do that. I mean, if I get a letter or an email or whatever, I always scan down to the bottom to see who it's from before then reading. Well, they use common sense. They put the sender at the beginning of the letter. So Paul, he is the sender. He's the author of the book. And if you know anything about Paul you'll know he absolutely hated Christians earlier on in his life. In fact, he hated them with such a ferocity, he actually murdered them. But then Jesus came down from heaven, literally blinded Paul, knocked him right off his feet, and uh, perhaps not surprisingly, Paul changed his thinking and decided to become a follower of Jesus. And he goes from a man who killed Christians to a pastor of Christians, from a church persecutor to a church planter. And he goes on to write many of the books, the majority of the books of the New Testament, including this letter to his friends in the church in Philippi. Let's keep going. Paul and Timothy, that's his right-hand man, his pastoral assistant, if you like, Paul and Timothy, servants or slaves of Christ Jesus. And this is who Paul's writing to, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Those are the leaders of the church. Okay, three things I quickly want us to look at. Christ Jesus, saints and slaves. Christ Jesus, saints and slaves. We'll take them in that order. First up, is Christ Jesus. Paul starts with Jesus. As we're going to keep on seeing over the next few months, as we read through the rest of this book, Paul constantly comes back to Jesus. It's like, if you want to find genuine joy, you've got to start by focusing on Jesus, and you need to keep on coming back and refocusing on Jesus. Now, Paul... He was a well-respected Old Testament scholar, and so he was well aware of the Old Testament promises about the coming of a Messiah, the coming of Jesus. Many of them prophesied that Jesus would come as a humble servant, and you really need to grasp this picture of Jesus as a humble servant if you're going to fully appreciate Philippians. It's a theme that's woven throughout this whole book, particularly chapter 2, which we'll get to in a few weeks' time. Now here's the thing. Today, we live in a culture that tells you not to serve, but to be served. And not to be humble, but to be proud. But Jesus came in humility in order to serve. He says it himself in Matthew 20, verse 28. The Son of Man, which is the title from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament about Jesus, the Messiah, being God. The Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. Now, this stands in stark contrast to the culture we live in. We, we live in a service-based economy. Many of you, you have service-based jobs. You, you get paid to serve people who walk in and act as though they're God. And one of the big goals, the big ambitions, the big dreams in this culture, this society, is for us one day to make enough money so that we're the boss and other people will have to serve us. 
Jesus says, I didn't come, even though I am God, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. I want you to just try and get your head around that. This is absolutely unbelievable. God himself came to serve. And Jesus elaborates a little further. He adds, and to give my life as a ransom or the payment for sin for many. Now we're familiar with these concepts. So many of us are familiar with these words. But I want them to hit you as though you're hearing them for the first time. Jesus, who is fully God, went to the cross and he served us. He literally gave himself up for us. If you read the Gospels, you see that throughout his life, Jesus was constantly serving others. He fed people, he cared for people, he healed people, even washed the feet of his own disciples, which that was the job just reserved for slaves. Even washed the feet of Judas, a man who he knew was going to betray him. I've got to tell you, there is no one as humble as Jesus. And there is no one who has ever or ever will serve us as well as Jesus. And all of this... I think we find a massive clue to understanding joy. It's not found in pride, it's found in humility. It's not found in being served, but in serving. And let's face it, this is completely countercultural. Only Jesus tells you to be a humble servant. No one else is saying this, no one else is proclaiming this message. But there again, no one else in our culture has really got the answers. Only Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, and if today you account yourself as one of his followers, then as we read on, there's a word that describes who you are. Paul uses it right here in this first verse. He says, to all the saints. To all the saints. If you're a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, that is who you are. You are a saint. In a nutshell, Jesus lived for you, died for you, and rose for you. He's taken away completely your old life, and he's now given you as a free gift a brand new life. We talk about being born again. He's made you completely holy, pure, spotless in his sight. And it's a gift. There's nothing you can do to earn it or pay him back. Nothing you can do to deserve it. It's a free gift received by grace. And now you are set apart for him. You are a saint. That's our identity. That's who we are. I tell you, if you grasp this, if you get it, you're going to know a whole new sense of dignity in your life and a whole load of joy. Now, I guess most of us are willing to believe this. might take a while to sink in, but I'm a saint. I think I can live with that. I quite like that. I might even put it on my CV. Qualifications, I am a saint. Very impressive. But the other title that Paul gives us here, most of us need a little bit more convincing. Because he goes on to say, we're also servants. Or perhaps a truer translation of the Greek word that Paul uses here would be slaves. Paul's saying that to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, means to be a slave 
of Jesus. In other words, he's your master. He's the one in charge. You do what he says. He's the one you listen to, follow, and obey. Now, I might be slightly misreading your response at this point, but I'm guessing that most of you aren't all that excited by this part of the talk. I mean, the rest, I mean, being a saint, great, taking notes at that point. Being a slave, not so keen. I'm assuming most of you aren't all that pumped by being called a slave of Christ. This isn't why you became a Christian. This isn't the ticket you came in on. So the first thing that I've got to try and do is convince you that in reality, all of us are slaves in some way. All of us are slaves, whether it's to Jesus or to sin or to religion. It's actually a question of who or what we want to be slaves to. That's the issue. So let's do slavery to sin first. In Titus 3, verse 3, Paul says, at one time we too, talking about Christians who used to be non-Christians, at one time we too, we as well, were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and, notice this word, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Let me illustrate it like this. Chatting with a friend recently, he, we're talking about this very subject, and he was saying, "Well, I, I resent this talk. I'm not a slave to sin." So I say to him, "Well, be perfect then." And he thinks about it. And he says, "Well, I can't be perfect." To which I say, "That's because you're a slave." And he kind of thought about it, reflected. I think he got it in the end. If you can't stop drinking, you're a slave to alcohol. If you can't stop overeating. You're a slave to food. If you can't stop getting angry, you're a slave to bitterness and rage. If you can't stop sleeping around, you're a slave to lust and to perversion. If you can't stop acting like the people around you, you're a slave to peer pressure. If you can't get free of the demands of people who are hurting you, you're effectively a slave to them. We're all a slave to something or someone. And here's how slavery to sin works. It's selfish. It's selfish. It's all for me. Certainly not for God and other people. It kind of makes me out to be God. I get to do whatever I want, stuff God and what he wants. It also demands service. It's constantly telling us, dictating to us, you need to do what I say. It struggles to serve because it's not about humility. It's nothing to do with self-sacrifice. And it's all motivated by internal rewards. I like it. I like the way it makes me feel. It makes me happy. I felt good. I felt better. Kind of starts out as fun, but then sooner or later it turns bad. And there are consequences. We get more and more enslaved, more and more trapped. That's slavery to sin. All of us, at one point, were slaves to sin. And some of you, in your heart of hearts, I think you know it right now. You're still a slave to sin. Second category, second alternative, is slavery to religion. Slavery to religion. This is how Peter puts it in 2 Peter 2, verse 19. For a man is a slave 
to whatever has mastered him. And in the context here, he's actually talking about religious people. Religious people are slaves to religion. Now, basically, religion is a whole bunch of stupid, ridiculous laws that God never made up. It, it gives us this long checklist of rules and laws and regulations that aren't to be found in the Bible, and it cons us into thinking, if I do these things, if I avoid those other things, then that makes me a good person, and God will now love me because he has to, So I'm better than others. Religion is just horrible. And religious people, well, they're the most difficult, obnoxious, obstinate, self-obsessed, self-righteous, proud people there are. They don't want to have humility like Jesus. It's all about how much better than others they are. But it doesn't make them particularly happy. It doesn't give them a whole lot of joy. Religious people have to work through threat and fear and condemnation and intimidation. It is no fun. They've got to scare you into being religious. And they tell you, unless you do these good things, God won't love you. As opposed to telling you, God loves you freely, unconditionally, in his grace. So now you can live a brand new life and do good things in response to his love. And here's the main problem with religion. It's selfish. It's consumed with me. Certainly not for God and other people. It, it kind of makes God obligated to me. God, I didn't do this bad thing, and I did do this good thing, so you must now do what I ask you to do for me. I mean, I deserve it. You've got to answer my prayers. God, you've got to heal me now. God, you've got to make me rich. God, you've got to bless me. God, you've got to do what I want. It's like a game where you're trying to constantly dupe God into being good as if he wasn't good to begin with. So all it boils down to is a choice. A choice between slavery to sin, slavery to religion, or slavery to Jesus, which, curiously enough, is the only way to be truly free. And it's this third category that Paul is talking about here in Philippians chapter 1. Servants or slaves of Christ Jesus. It's the complete opposite of slavery to sin or slavery to religion. For starters, it's selfless, not selfish, because Jesus has served me. Now I can serve Jesus and others. And because he first loved me so graciously, so unconditionally, I can now love him and love other people as well. And rather than me being God and getting what I want, or me trying to manipulate God to give me what I want, I now exist so that God might be glorified through my life. I want to do what God wants. I want to live as God wants. I want to serve others as God wants me to, so that other people get to see how good he is. It's not about me being God. It's not about me twisting God's arm or trying to manipulate him in some way. It's about me having this wonderful opportunity with my life to glorify God, the God who has served me so incredibly well. What's more, it's not all about those internal rewards and pleasures and feelings. And it's not about external rewards and the compliments of others and those promotions. It's about eternal reward. One day, standing face to face with Jesus himself, hearing him say the words, well done, good and faithful 
servant. And then entering into this glorious eternal life. I want to let you into a secret. Life, this life, is short. I want to let you into another secret. Eternity is long, very long. And life, this life, may not go the way you want it to go, but this isn't the end. This isn't it. This isn't all there is. This isn't heaven. Heaven is still to come. And in heaven, faithful service in this life will be rewarded by a faithful God who has served us well. And there'll be judgment for sin and for religion. But there'll be blessing and reward for humble service for those of us who live as slaves to Christ Jesus. Now, in my mind, that is pretty compelling. I'm there. I'm in on this. But I'm assuming that some of you, you're still struggling, still wrestling with this, maybe still tempted to reject it because you're thinking, well, there's no way I'm going to hand over all rights to Jesus. There's no way that I'm going to be a slave to Jesus. I don't want him to be master over all of my life. So as I start to wrap all of this up, I want to just tackle three of the main objections head on and then we're done. First of all, Some of you may say, some of you might be thinking, well, I'm free right now. Why do I want to be a slave? I just ask you to be completely honest with yourself. Are you really free? Are you really free? Then I'll ask you to be honest again and and work out to what or to whom you're enslaved. Who or what is effectively your master? If it's your boyfriend or girlfriend, if it's alcohol, if it's drugs, if it's food, if it's pride, if it's career and achievement, someone or something is your master. So here's the all-important question. Is it or are they better than Jesus? Do they love you more than Jesus does? Have they come looking for you? Have they died for you? Have they gone to prepare a better place for you for eternity? Are they going to come again for you? Do they serve you? Do do they really care about you? Because here's what I've found out about Jesus. He is a far better master. Far better master than I am. If I'm being honest, I say that and I believe it wholeheartedly. Sometimes I struggle to believe that. Christianity is all about faith. It's trusting that regardless of my circumstances, even when situations are tough, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than me. He's more loving, he's more gracious, he's more patient, far more kind, infinitely more merciful, much more generous than I am. And if he's the master, and I'm not, and no one and no thing beyond Jesus is my master, then although I might struggle to fully see it, I'm in the best possible position. And although it is really tough at times, life is really tough at times, there's a tremendous freedom that comes through slavery to Christ. It really is genuinely the secret to joy. And the reason so many people are unhappy in this culture, in this society, is because no one ever thought to look into slavery as the key to freedom, and to look at humility 
as the key to joy and to look at servanthood as a great lifestyle for those whose identity is as saints. Now, for those of you who still, you, you don't like this idea, you don't like the thought of being a servant of Jesus, I want to say this to you. By being a servant of Jesus, you are actually set free, you're delivered from having to be a slave to other people and other things. You can actually stand up and say no to pushy people and rude people and demanding people and arrogant people and abusive people who just want the worst for you. You can say, no, you are not my master. Jesus is. If he says I'm not to do that, I'm not to to, to go along with that, then then I'm not going to do it. It's powerful. It's so powerful. And then the third reason, the final reason, why perhaps some of you are still resisting being a slave of Jesus, it's you want to be in control. You still want to be number one. You, You want to be great. You just want to be great on your own terms. You, you want to live your best life now. You, you want to be all you can be. You want to be number one. That's what you want. If you remember, a few weeks back, right at the start of this year, we looked at the passage in Luke 22, where Jesus' disciples, they're having the exact same conversation with one another. And Jesus walks up. He says, hey guys, what are you talking about? Remember the story? Well, Jesus, we're having an argument about which one of us is the greatest I wonder at what point it dawns on them. It's probably Jesus. How could we have been so deluded? I mean, can you imagine how awkward that conversation must have been? But what I love about Jesus is, he doesn't kind of wade in and say, how dare you? What he says is, well, let me tell you how to find true greatness. What does he say? He says, you want to be the first? Then you've got to be the last. If you want to be the greatest you've got to be the least. You need to be the servant. You need to be the slave of all. It's like Jesus gives the most startling, the most shocking answer, the answer no one anticipated, the answer that flies in the face of culture and religion, which both tell you, be first, not last. Be proud, not humble. Be served, don't serve. Jesus comes along and he says, no, 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 that is all wrong. That's why everyone is so miserable. You see, That's the key to our joy. Our identity is a saint's because of what Jesus has done for us through his death, his burial, his resurrection, to take away our sin and to make us whole. And our lifestyle now is as slaves. We belong to Jesus. We trust him. We believe he is the very best master. And so we willingly obey him because his life is the only one that's really worth living. And the difference with this slavery, is that it's not forced. It's entirely voluntary. So you need to go away and you need to decide who your master is. You need to decide what your identity is. You need to decide what or whom you're enslaved to. For someone who's known Jesus for most of his life, I assure you of this, personally, I have no regrets. No regrets. Jesus really is the greatest, the best master. He loves, he serves, he cares. He hears, he gives, he lives, he dies. He rises again. He intercedes constantly for me. He's preparing a far better place for me to go. And he's coming again. So many people in this room who go along with this, who believe this to be true. And my encouragement to you is to keep living 
in the good of it. Why don't you keep living in the good of it? To, to not get yourself enslaved by other stuff that would rob you of your joy. To humbly live, to serve Jesus, not to earn his love, but because he first loved you. And if you haven't yet made that decision, that decision to follow Jesus, for him to be your master, I'd love you to make that choice today, to give your sin to Jesus, to ask him to forgive you, to walk away from here, walk away from the pursuit of happiness in sin and religion, and instead come to Jesus and become a servant of him. And I assure you of this, it's the way, the only way to genuine joy.